0: We begin this episode with a warning. Our opening vignette this week is a description of foot binding. It's rather gruesome and something we certainly now consider barbaric mutilation. We include this because it was a practice that was prevalent in China for about a thousand years. and We think it's important to understand the mass suffering this practice caused. Still, we wanted to provide a caution before beginning. If you'd rather skip it, A regular episode begins at 3 minutes and 10 seconds.
1: I was six years old when my mother bound my feet. I vividly remembered my older sister's screams when my mother bound her feet. I was four at the time. I begged and begged my mother not to bind my feet, but she told me that no man would marry a woman with big feet. I told her I never wanted to get married, but she told me she wouldn't support a spinster daughter who was too afraid to bind her feet like every woman of our class. That afternoon, I was sitting in my room when my father walked in with the cotton strips, and my mother followed behind with a bowl of herbs and the blood of our slaughtered chickens. I knew what was happening as soon as I saw them. I panicked and tried to run past my parents, out of the room, but my older brother was right behind them and caught me. Then my father grabbed me by my arms, and I couldn't get away. My mother said, This will only hurt for a while, then you won't be able to feel it. First they soaked my feet in the blood and herbs. Then my father forced me down onto my bed and held my upper body so I couldn't move. My brother held my legs. I was completely immobilized. Then my mother began. She started with a little toe on my left foot, bending it underneath my foot until it broke. The pain was searing. I remembered well how long my sister was screaming when they bound her feet. One by one, my mother broke each of the toes on my left foot. Crack, crack, crack. Each one was more and more painful as she moved on to the larger toes with thicker bones. By the time she broke my last toe, I was screaming so much I could barely breathe. Little did I know how much worse the pain could get. Next, my mother bent my foot down, applying more and more pressure. The pain was beyond imagining. I was screaming at the top of my lungs, but my mother kept forcing the top of my foot down until my arch broke. Then she started binding. I had so many broken bones in my foot, but my torment only continued. Now my mother took the binding cloth and bound my toes underneath my foot so tightly that they were folded over against the flesh of my soul. Then she started wrapping the cloth from around my toes to around my heel in a figure-eight fashion. With each pass of the cloth, she pulled tighter and tighter, pulling my broken arch closer and closer to my heel. When she finally stopped, the pain was beyond excruciating. The agony seemed as though it had lasted forever, but they had only bound one foot. As my mother grabbed my other foot, my terror reached a fever pitch.
0: Welcome to Nero's Fiddle, Episode 21, The Dynasty Mo. Today we get to enjoy one of our two rare forays outside the Western Historical Canon and look at Chinese history. We start with the Han Dynasty in 206 BC and we'll finish with the end of the Ming Dynasty in 1644 AD. This was about the time the Europeans were wrapping up the Reformation and just finishing the Thirty Years' War. Our story begins then with Liu Bang. Would later be known as the Gaozu Emperor, who was the first emperor of the Han dynasty. He was a commoner who, in 206 BC, led a peasants' revolt against the short lived Qin dynasty. Since he had been a commoner, Liu Bang understood what it was like for Chinese peasants. He eased the laws regarding peasants and lowered taxes on common people. He also did something revolutionary. Liu Bang started a system of testing to allow talented commoners into government. This was just the beginning of what would become a very long tradition of civil service examinations, allowing a path for intelligent, capable commoners to rise into high levels of government. At one point, a former pig farmer passed these exams and became the imperial grand chancellor to the second emperor. A dowager empress placed her nephew, Wang Mong, on the throne in 980. He increased state-run monopolies from two to six which disenfranchised much of the small Chinese middle class. All land became property of the emperor and was redistributed to the landless poor. Though land reform can be a very good thing, Wang Mong handled it in such a way that he only served to anger the rich, talented nobility. His attempts at helping the peasants came to naught when a series of natural disasters convinced the people that he had lost the mandate of heaven. Starving peasants turned to banditry and rebellion. The entire empire rose against Wang Mang. He was defeated by the largest band, the Red Eyebrows, who installed a puppet emperor. But this didn't last long. He was defeated and they became a decentralized mob that was eventually defeated by a member of the imperial family, Liu Yuzhu, who was allegedly a descendant of the Gaozu emperor. Yuzhu instituted good government and instituted modest land reforms and standardized civil service exams. More than this, he established more than 100 state institutions to train talented students at government expense. Under Liu Shu, the Han now experienced a second Golden Age. They patrolled the eastern half of the Silk Road, providing good trade. To add to their accomplishments, the Han invented paper. For the first time in human history, China had a good source of writing material, plentiful and cheap to produce. This added greatly to Chinese intellectual culture. Though these were all great reforms, history seems to provide one constant. Poor and lax government will, over time, inevitably lead even great empires to decline. Over the decades, the civil servant class became more and more powerful. They exerted increasing power over the emperor and, ultimately, they even installed and sometimes removed puppet emperors, preferring the youngest and weakest and easiest to control. Remember that it's relatively early in the history of agriculture. The Chinese wouldn't develop a system of rice and wheat rotation until the Sui Dynasty in the 6th century. Agricultural surpluses were not nearly as hardy as they would be later on. The inevitable natural disasters that struck periodically, droughts, floods, locusts, etc., could be devastating to peasants. Earlier Han emperors had guaranteed taxed amnesty, grain relief, and the right to fish and hunt on royal lands during times of crisis. This had eased the stresses on the peasants who didn't rebel. At this point, however, the corrupt and powerful civil service class had become reliant on taxes for their opulent lifestyles. When famine struck in the 180s, their taxes dropped as crops failed. Their response was predictably short-sighted. They raised taxes on peasants and seized their lands. Yep, you guessed it. This led to another peasant rebellion. Many of them were military veterans, so the rebellion was led by trained soldiers. The civil service was too weak to oppose them, so they turned to a solution similar to the feudal system that Europe would use in the Dark Ages. They granted local warlords plenary power within their local fiefdoms. It took twenty years, but the warlords defeated the rebels now known as the Yellow Turbans. Predictably, though, These independent warlords fought each other for territory, and in 220, the last Han puppet emperor was dethroned. After the fall of the Han dynasty, there was an intermediate period where local strongmen ruled various smaller kingdoms until Emperor Wen conquered these various smaller kingdoms and founded the Sui dynasty in 581 AD and established a centralized government. He was a Buddhist and ordered the building of over 4,000 Buddhist monasteries and convents. Emperor Wen also reinstituted the civil service exam, removed many harsh restrictions on the people, and instituted land reforms that distributed land based on the number of persons in each household. China thrived under him and entered another golden age. This was during the early dark ages in Europe. But Emperor Wen was about to accomplish his most amazing achievement. He began the construction of a canal of over 1,100 miles, connecting the Yellow River in the north with the Yangtze River in the south. This was a huge project, especially considering the limited tools available in the 6th century. It was the greatest public works project of its time. The canal was completed and opened in 611. It's still in use today, making it one of the longest continually used public works projects ever. It's hard to overstate the impact of this project. At the time, the only other mode of transporting goods was via cart or wagon, making the transport of goods prohibitively expensive other than for short distances. The Grand Canal, as it came to be known, opened up trade for millions of Chinese along some of its most populated areas, and created tens of thousands of jobs. Now, when there was a drought in the north, rice could be sent from the south, Emperor Wen's Grand Canal improved the lives of millions of Chinese for over a thousand years. Wen replaced much of the governance by local landed elites with Confucian scholars that had come through the civil service exam. This worked very well. He was a simple but competent ruler who cared for the common people. Sadly, Emperor Wen was murdered in 604. Some believe he was murdered by his son, who was ambitious to take over the throne. Emperor's son would become known as the Yongle Emperor. He set out to show how quickly a profligate and incompetent emperor could bring down a thriving and well run empire. And in this he did a good job. Emperor Wen had built an extravagant capital that was five miles long by six miles deep. The Yongle Emperor liked it so much that he built another. After all, if one capital is great, how much greater would it be to have two? Unfortunately, That was only the beginning. He undertook several very expensive building programs, which are thought to have cost the lives of millions of peasants. The Yangla Emperor was a bad general, but why let that stop one from having all the fun of military campaigning? He put together a massive army and invaded Korea. He probably assumed that a small country like Korea couldn't withstand a huge army such as his. Perhaps this would have been true if it had competent leadership but the Korean army defeated him and he returned to China in disgrace. In China, the emperor ruled under what was called the Mandate of Heaven. In other words, heaven divinely appointed the emperor. When the Yangla emperor came home in defeat, there were whispers about whether heaven had withdrawn its mandate. After two more failed invasions of Korea and a depleted treasury, these whispers turned into shouts. An exhausted peasantry, weary from many years of hardships, began to revolt, and in the end, the Yangla Emperor was killed by the son of one of his own generals in 618. The government was then taken over by a man named Li Yuan, who had become known as Gaozu, the founder of the Tang Dynasty. Gaozu was fortunate. He had a stable government system already set up. He took advantage of the existing civil service exams to create a highly competent bureaucracy. Gaozu had no money to establish a large government because the imperial treasury had been completely drained by the Yongle Emperor. Gaozu directed a simple, spare government of very competent administrators. Such governments rarely go wrong. He oversaw land reform in which every male was given a plot of land, and where both peasant unrest and overly large landed estates were minimized. Gaozu also reformed and codified the law. The arts flourished during the Tang period especially poetry, which was helped by the widespread use of paper and the development of printing, which was now common. Poets and painters were raised to high offices in the Tang. Tang China became the strongest, most well-run empire on earth at the time. The Tang were open to all cultural influences. Talented people were sought from foreign lands. Soon people from Central Asia, Persia, the Middle East, and India, as well as Zoroastrians and Nestorian Christians, were welcomed into the Tang dynasty, absorbed into the capital and disseminated across Chinese society. The Tang era was truly the golden age of China. There was sufficient agricultural surplus during the Tang era to support a thriving middle class and aristocracy. The newly completed Grand Canal served as an incredible highway allowing commerce throughout a huge swath of China. In a time before motorized transport, there is no way this kind of commerce would have otherwise been available to the Chinese. China began to export foods, and ships carried Chinese goods like silk, which sold for its weight in gold in Europe, Persia, and India. China became very wealthy. In fact, Tang China made the contemporary Europe of Charlemagne and the Vikings look like a backwater. Emperor Ming ruled Tang China from 712 to 746. He was the greatest Tang emperor and some think he was China's best emperor. The arts flowered under his reign. Great ideas, fashions, and people flocked to the capital, including the creme de la creme of elite Confucian scholars. This was a period of unparalleled creativity. Ming picked good ministers who served him well. Court extravagances were scaled down. Ming also abolished capital punishment and stayed in touch with the common people generally concerned for their welfare. This was a period of unparalleled economic prosperity. The downside of a lifetime tenure, however, is that an emperor can serve too long. Emperor Ming had many concubines, but in his later years he was smitten by one favorite. He wanted to spend all of his time with her. Eventually, he allowed her to have too much sway with him, and she convinced him to appoint her corrupt, incompetent cousin as chancellor. It took revolt for Emperor Ming to finally wake up take back control of the government, and put the concert to death. Yeah, yeah, you see it coming, right? The Emperor Ming didn't govern well in his later years. The later Tang emperors weren't strong either, and power abhors a vacuum. The once very competent civil service stepped into the vacuum and became corrupt. Now we're about 130 years into the Tang dynasty, with a little over 150 years to go. Tang emperors had huge harems of consorts presided over by large cohorts of eunuchs. With Tang emperors spending so much time with their consorts, the eunuchs eventually began to have inflated influence with their emperors. As emperors became weaker and weaker, eunuchs became stronger and stronger. With weakness at the head of government, corruption became common among government officials. Local warlords became stronger putting pressure on the government. In addition, invasions from the Uyghurs and Tibet plagued China at this time. Buddhism had become widespread during the Tang era. The use of paper and woodblock printing had helped disseminate it throughout the empire. Remember the openness of the early Tang, which foreigners from all around China were welcomed into the Ming intelligentsia? Well, there's a phenomenon that might be termed late dynastic xenophobia, It often seeps into dynasties in decline. Remember how we talked about the people in an empire's early phases working hard and being of strong character? And people in the later stages of an empire, when there's more wealth, not having the strong character of their early empire ancestors? People with less strength of character have lots of anxiety and fear out-groups, which can take the form of fear of foreigners or xenophobia. In the late Tang empire, this late dynastic xenophobia, took the form of fearing anyone who was not either Confucian or Taoist. Nestorian Christians and other foreigners who had been welcomed by the early Tang were persecuted, but it was the Buddhists who suffered the worst persecution. The Confucians were happy to fan the flames of this anti-Buddhist backlash, especially with popular sentiment going against the Buddhists and so much wealth stored in Buddhist temples. The government helped themselves to these temples and all their gold. The late Tang Empire whimpered along for quite a while, but finally, too much corruption, foreign invasions, and rebellions led to its inevitable end in 907, plunging China into another intermediate period with many warring groups. This one would last 53 years. Decades ago, when I was an undergrad, went to a small liberal arts school with a small history department that taught only European history. I thought this was too parochial, so I went to the University of Oregon for a year to study Chinese and Japanese history. I remember the big question back then was, if the Tang dynasty hadn't imploded, would they have developed capitalism? With the Tang's vibrant and open society during its high period, it was tempting to say yes, but that was before we knew what we know now about dynamic systems. As thriving as the Hai Tong was, it was still a controlled society and economy, but it's when open economic systems are permitted to operate without extensive and undue regulations that capitalistic economies develop, and for that we're still going to have to wait to the Industrial Revolution. So after the 53-year intermediate period, Song Taizu finally reunited all the warring groups and established the Song Dynasty in 960. And again, there was a period of flourishing under the early Song reign. Chinese invented movable type and gunpowder. There was also an increase in the study of sciences with advances in biology and mathematics. Paper money, the magnetic compass, and clocks, among other things, were invented during the Song era. China's population reached perhaps 100 million. And again, many scholars consider this to be the most advanced civilization in the world at the time the Song created the first joint stock companies, something that Europe wouldn't develop for a few more centuries, and an open-minded early Song attitude saw a resurgence of Buddhism, which ultimately became more accepted than it was even under the Tang dynasty. Taoism and the arts also enjoyed a resurgence. At the height of the Song, China was enjoying another golden age. Tragically for millions of women, the practice of foot binding also began during this time. I apologize for the grisly nature of this episode's opening vignette. It's hard to listen to, and it was hard to write. I think it's important, however, to understand how barbaric this custom was. One reason it's important is because it shows a trend we have to understand if we're going to understand our historical journey to now. In almost all cases, these were mothers who were binding the feet of their daughters. They had undergone the procedures themselves when they were their daughter's age. How could they have been so callous to put their daughters through this kind of torture, knowing the pain they were inflicting? This is a procedure that, had it been carried out in a European medieval torture chamber, would have been considered one of the most barbaric methods in an already barbaric torture arsenal. Yet it was carried out on almost every upper-class woman in China for a thousand years. Why would parents do this to daughters they loved? The answer is that we humans seem to have a compassion switch. In which we are able to turn off our compassion for others, even when we see them going through tremendous pain or torture. As far as I can tell, we can't turn it off ourselves, yet when we are acculturated to understand that certain pain is acceptable or even necessary, we, oddly, seem to be able to turn off our feelings of compassion for others and not feel their pain. This is different from actively enjoying the pain of an outsider, which I've called in a previous episode schadenfreude joy. At any rate, Chinese upper-class parents were able to endure the screams of their daughters for a thousand years, so that an upper-class man would later be able to enjoy the status symbol of a crippled and impractical wife. After maybe a hundred years in power, corruption began to sink into the Song government. This led to political instability and popular unrest. One of the later Song emperors, Shenzhong, recognized this and directed his prime minister to address and correct the problems. He twice attempted to introduce reforms in order to remedy the situation. Unfortunately for Shenzong, the political system had become entrenched and the aristocracy by that time was too powerful. Conservative forces prevented his reforms both times, and the dynasty continued its long downward slide towards corruption and weakened central government. This decline coincided with several civilian uprisings that grew out of the hardships that occur when central government is unable to provide the basic needs of its peasants, especially in the wake of natural disasters. These revolts occupied the Song government and troops for a long time. Then, attacks came from the north. The ancestors of the Manchurians captured huge swaths of territory in the north, and the Song were forced to pay them a massive ransom in order to prevent further invasions. Yeah, you got it. Anytime you see an empire paying foreign forces not to invade it, you're probably looking at a dynasty that's headed for a fall. Eventually, the Song had to abandon the northern half of its empire and moved south to the Yangtze River Valley. There, the Song were able to reestablish themselves and survived for another 150 years or so. This period, known as the Southern Song, was notable for reforms and once again good government, including things like food assistance and medical aid for the poor. With better emperors, the Southern Song were able to last, even thrive, for a time. Their luck ran out when Genghis Khan's grandson, the great Kublai Khan, turned his sights south toward the Song. The Song knew they were coming and needed assets to counter the anticipated Mongol hordes. To raise these needed funds, they confiscated the great estates of the upper aristocracy. You can imagine how excited the aristocracy was about this. They ultimately decided it would be better to be taken over by foreigners than to lose everything they had. Turns out that alienating your main supporters just before an invasion isn't a great strategy. Who knew? The Mongols conquered the Song in 1279. And created the Yuan Dynasty. Under the Yuan Dynasty, Kublai Khan reunited China. He was known as bringing together the best scientific, intellectual, and artistic minds in his court. His was a kingdom that sparkled with intellectual achievements and diversity. When the young Marco Polo arrived in his court with his father and uncle, Kublai Khan probably hired them to serve as local administrators. He also solicited Muslims and people from other faiths and cultures. I've seen estimates that he hired three million laborers to expand the Grand Canal. This seems like an extraordinary figure, but whatever he did, it was on a large scale, and the expanded canal served to turbocharge a newly thriving Chinese economy. Kublai Khan also introduced programs to recover lands for more, as well as programs to improve economic growth and cultural development. In addition, he allowed the Song nobility, who had surrendered, to keep their wealth thus ensuring a stable aristocratic class to keep the empire functioning. The status of merchants was also improved with Kublai Khan introducing measures to generate trade throughout the land. In turn, the merchants' success raised China's standard of living and turned China into a global center for trade and commerce. China enjoyed a new level of wealth in international trade. Along with this, there was a great blossoming of ideas and art and technology as a result of the intellectual talent That Kublai Khan had invited. I have seen him described as a wise leader who was loved by his subjects. Still, as Kublai Khan got older, he began to get lost in the pleasures of his court and left the administration of the empire more and more to his administrators. He became fat, alcoholic, and racked by gout. Eventually, he withdrew from public life and no longer attended the celebrations he once hosted. Once again, corruption and poor governance crept inexorably into government. This corruption accelerated greatly after Kublai Khan's death. Poor harvests, corrupt officials, bad governance, and a Mongol policy that looked down on ethnic Han Chinese all worked together to lead a series of peasant revolts against the Yuan. In the beginning, this was nothing that a well-run government and enlightened social policies wouldn't have been able to fix. But bad emperors and corrupt ministers continued the Yuan government's death spiral. Then a series of floods caused the Yellow River to burst its banks, destroying farms and causing masses of peasants to have to flee. This, in turn, led to mass uprisings. The dying regime breathed its last. As its high officials remained mired in corruption and intrigue, a rebel warlord captured the capital at Dadu, modern-day Beijing, and the dynasty was overthrown in 1368. The Ming established their empire within a few years of the fall of the Yuan. The first Ming emperor, Hongwu, established his capital in Nanjing in the south. He quickly established a flourishing empire with a vibrant economy. The Ming Chinese were seen by their neighbors as the most advanced, most civilized empire in the world. Most Chinese dynasties encouraged Confucian scholarship and values. Confucianism reinforced the Chinese hierarchy with peasants at the bottom and the emperor with his mandate of heaven at the top. This Confucian order was the Chinese counterpart to Europe's great chain of being. As I've mentioned, every pre-industrial revolution agricultural society had a very strict class order. The Chinese were no exception. But the previous dynasty, the Yuan, were led by foreigners who hadn't valued the traditional Chinese culture as previous dynasties had. Consequently, Confucian scholars had fallen into disfavor under the Yuan. Hongwu encouraged a return to Confucian values. Hongwu was a son of a peasant and understood what it was like for peasants. He instituted land reform and redistributed land from the rich nobles to poor peasants. Placing land in the hands of producers increased agricultural production. The Ming era was Chinese one period of exploration, though it never truly caught on and was eventually discontinued. The Ming emperors also later moved the capital back to Beijing in the north. The huge capital, known as the Forbidden City, was built at this point in the Ming era. The Forbidden City was a large opulent city from which China was governed and from which commoners were banned. There were downsides to this Forbidden City. It was isolated from the country and emperors rarely left the safe confines of its walls. Emperors would have huge harems that were controlled by a large retinue of eunuchs. These eunuchs generally had the ear of either emperor or his high retainers and came to have extraordinary power. All of this gave the Ming rulers the character of having high taste for art and good life, constant court intrigue, and concerts who occasionally became very powerful. Still, the Ming emperors were quite removed from the needs of the Chinese people. In the later Ming dynasty, the quality of emperors declined. Meanwhile, Mongols raided from the north, and Japanese and other pirates attacked coastal cities. The Ming empire was in decline. In 1567, an incompetent emperor came to the throne who was uninterested in running the empire. But he did have one thing right. He appointed a very talented minister to rule for him. This minister, Zhang Juzeng, made peace with the Mongols and put a stop to the pirate raids. Under Zhang's capable hands, the Ming dynasty enjoyed a period of resurgence and growth. Popular literature and cities became the centers of intellectual activity. Private academies sprang up in large cities. Manufacturing became a major source of wealth for the first time. Trade with Europe began to flourish. Europeans were more interested in Chinese goods than Chinese were interested in European goods. Therefore, the Chinese had a balance of payment surplus of silver, that is, more silver flowed from Europe to China than from China to Europe, which helped to significantly increase their cash economy. Later Ming emperors once again proved poor leaders, and the dynasty again went into decline, with corrupt officials and eunuchs again taking control of much of the government. In the end, Manchu forces invaded from the north. A corrupt and weakened Ming dynasty was too weak to repel the threat. The Ming dynasty fell in 1644. I'd love to continue with a lot more Chinese history, but that's enough for our purposes today. And we've covered a lot. So here's a quick recap of our brief stroll through Chinese history today. Poor government by Wang Meng initially drove the Han dynasty into decline, but the capable Liu Shu defeated the red-eyebrow rebels who had deposed Wang Mang. He instituted good government that led to a second golden age for the Han. Ultimately, however, an increasingly powerful and corrupt Chinese civil service began installing puppet emperors. As they increased taxes following some of China's recurring natural disasters, the peasants revolted and brought down the Han. The Sui dynasty, Saw the kind of flourishing of art, culture, and economy we typically see early in an empire. One of the most lasting and amazing public works projects, the Grand Canal, was undertaken and completed by Emperor Wen during this period. Emperor Wen left a dynamic dynasty with a thriving economy to his son, but the Yongle Emperor managed to snuff out the dynasty in just his generation. Following this, the Tang Dynasty lasted from 618 to 907. It was China's most thriving, vibrant dynasty, yet we still saw the slow creep of corruption into civil service and the inevitable fall into bad leadership toward the end of the dynasty that led ultimately to its demise. The Song began their dynasty in 960 with another peaceful, prosperous period in Chinese history that saw a stable government, a thriving economy, and a flourishing of the arts. The political corruption that crept into the Song dynasty after about 150 years was accompanied by popular unrest and invasions by foreigners. This led to the Song abandoning the northern half of their empire after great dynastic upheaval and the resettlement of their capital in southern China. A series of good emperors re-established a period of good government and a prospering China. This was ended when they were invaded by the Mongols who very few empires from Russia to China had been able to withstand. The Mongols established the Yuan dynasty with Kublai Khan as their emperor. Kublai Khan was talented both as a general and as an administrator. He brought China good government, a thriving diverse court, and prosperity. However, his failure to continue as a competent leader allowed the inevitable corruption to seep into the Yuan government. The failure of Mongols to install a competent emperor into the throne after he died accelerated the decline of their relatively short dynasty. The Ming dynasty, which installed itself next, obeyed the general pattern of good governance followed by slow decline accompanied by corruption by government officials. However, when the very capable Zhang Juzeng took the reins of government well into the Ming's initial decline, he was able to initiate reforms and bring about another era of prosperity for the Chinese. Eventually, though, another series of poor emperors and corrupt government officials ultimately led to the Ming's decline and fall. It was fun to talk today about the Chinese, who've been sadly absent from our story thus far. But covering so much Chinese history in such a short time almost feels like I presented a caricature of Chinese history. There's so much to it, and we barely scratched the surface. We didn't even get to the really interesting stuff that comes after the Ming. I hope at some point you can dig into some of this history in more depth. But we were able to talk about the one aspect of Chinese history that we needed to cover today. If you happened to listen to the trailer that we did for this podcast... You might remember that I mentioned that history is a wheel within a wheel. The outer wheel keeps moving forward, ever so slowly, and sometimes two steps forward and one step back. But always, over time, inexorably forward. Technology is continuously improving. Economies become wealthier and wealthier. People become more compassionate, more humane. Within this larger wheel is the inner wheel, this is the one in which dynasties are constantly coming into being, growing, thriving, then declining again to be replaced by the next dynasty. We looked at China today as it gave us a good break from European history. But really, we could have looked at France, England, Japan, you name it. This inner wheel has been rolling on and on since the Sumerians established Uruk all those millennia ago. Over and over again, we see the same pattern. A new dynasty is established. Good governments leads to a period of growth and prosperity, probably a thriving of the arts as well. Over time, leaders who grew up with a silver spoon and a sense of entitlement come to power and don't have the strength of character, their foremothers and fathers did. They're selfish and prove bad administrators. Corruption seeps into government, and the dynasties decline until they are overthrown and replaced by another. A dynasty can be like the Ming and find a period of resurgence after a period of decline if they get lucky enough to find a good leader. Think, too, of Augustus Caesar reforming the Roman Empire after the fall of the Roman Republic. This inner wheel has always rolled round and round, and it continues its revolutions today. Only now, advanced industrialized nations don't conquer other advanced industrialized nations so much, but they build up strong economies dominate other, weaker economies, and ultimately suffer the decline of their economy to be dominated in turn by stronger economies. I hope you've enjoyed our foray into China today. There's so much more to Chinese history than we've been able to talk about, but at least we've got a flavor for history's inner wheel, which we'll need to know when we get to analyzing the complicated mechanisms of where we are now. Next week, it's back to Europe. This week's read is Commissioner Lin and the Opium War by Xin Pao Chang. It's an eye-opener. Xin Pao's book deals with a later period in Chinese history than we dealt with today, but it's a classic and deserves to be read. Enjoy. See you next week.